Well, now we worship God again in the reading and the hearing of his word. And as you can see in your bulletin, we turn to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 2. Last week we picked up the story at the beginning of 2 Samuel. And remember what we saw last week at the beginning of this particular book. What we saw was David got the news about Israel's defeat on the field of battle at the hands of the Philistines. And what's more, he got the news about Saul's death in that battle and Jonathan's death as well. It was a powerful moment. It was a revealing moment. It was one of those moments when eyes were on David. People were watching him, whether they realized it or not. Whether David himself was conscious of it at the time or not, people were watching him to see how he would respond to the news, to see how he would handle it. And thankfully, remember, the way he handled it was with integrity because he was not pleased when that guy claimed to have killed Saul. And he also handled it with holy grief because he poured himself out in lamentation over Saul and Jonathan. And he also handled it by turning toward the future. As I said last week, in a sense, David knew that he was Israel's future now that Saul was dead, and so he went back home. He knew that it was time to go home. He went back home to Judah, and the people of Judah made him their king. They knew he was the future as well. And then he also reached out to the people of Jabesh-Gilead on the other side of the Jordan River, and he called on them to be courageous as well. He called on them to turn toward the future along with him. And that's the last thing we heard last Sunday. Look at verse 7. David says, Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So to be sure, it was a moment that would require courage of them. And it was a moment when there was ground for courage. Because God had provided a new king after Saul. So that's what we covered last week. That brings us to this week. This week we pick up where we left off. We pick up at chapter 2, verse 8. And what we're going to see this morning is that this is a classic instance of something you probably know well from your own experience, which is this. It is sometimes the case that when you turn the page on what has been a season of testing and trial, and you leave certain difficulties behind, maybe even monumental difficulties. It's sometimes the case that you turn the page only to find that a whole new set of tests and trials is waiting for you on the next page. Maybe you anticipated them, maybe you did not. But you realize, looking back, that you'd have been naive to think that everything was going to be smiles and sunshine from here on out. So think about David's experience where we pick up the story here. In David's case, at this point in the story, Saul is dead. This man who's been hunting him down and trying to kill him. 
will hunt him down no more. And not only that, but the tribe of Judah, David's own tribe, has crowned him king. So in many ways, David has turned the page. It's a new season. It's a new chapter. David has left certain tests and trials behind, and they were monumental. But what does he find when he turns the page? Or thinking about us now as the readers of the story, what do we find when we turn the page in 2 Samuel? Or when we look down the page and keep reading? And that's what we're about to find out. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word. We've just made it our prayer in song that our Savior, who is the bread of life, would break the bread and and nourish us now, that he would feed our souls. And that becomes our prayer again. We pray that you would feed and nourish and strengthen us with the truth. Grant us through the word to commune with Christ who is the truth. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So let me begin reading for us. Chapter 2, verse 8. As I've been doing lately, I may pause and explain a few things as we go. And then we'll take a step back and learn some lessons from our passage. So chapter 2, verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Maenaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, pause there. What we've got here is a kind of civil war. After Saul's death, what we've got now are these two rival camps. It's not all that, all that surprising that the household of Saul and those who had been allied with Saul, they weren't just going to let go of power after his death, and they did not. So what's described here in these opening verses is this. Saul's leading general, Abner who was also Saul's cousin, by the way, Abner is the one who spearheads a competing claim to the throne. And it's clear that Abner is the one who's making this happen. And a little bit of geography here, by the way. Maenaim was on the other side of the Jordan River. It was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So that's where, at least at first... This competing claim to the throne is going to be based across the river. Given the danger and the drama of what this is going to mean, perhaps they thought being removed at least at some distance was a good play. It says that Abner 
made him king over all Israel. That doesn't mean that every single tribe except for Judah was thoroughly committed to this cause. It just means that Abner has it in mind that this particular son of Saul is going to be the king of Israel after his father. And meanwhile, David's tribe, the tribe of Judah, the tribe in the far south, they have already made David their king, so lines are being drawn. Sides are being taken, these two rival camps and those who would support them. And bear in mind, it would be easy for us today from our vantage point, to render judgment about all of this. We know that David is the anointed one of God, right? We know that David has been promised by God that he's going to reign. We know where the story goes. But at the time, the situation on the ground, the situation for the people of Israel, it might have been messy. It might not have been quite so clear. In any case, that's what develops after the death of Saul. So Abner's effort to spearhead this rival claim, it's based on the other side of the Jordan River, the eastern side. But then they cross the river, that's what happens next, and they come west to Gibeon in the territory of Benjamin. Remember that Saul was a Benjaminite. And that's where things get bloody. Take a look now at verse 2, where we left off. Chapter 2, verse 12. Excuse me, verse 12. Verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Maonaim to Gibeon. Right? So now they've crossed the river. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. Now, we can pause there, too, and we can admit this is a rather strange episode that we've got in these verses, and it's not entirely clear what to make of it. It looks like some kind of representative competition or combat was staged between the two sides. And then before too long, it turned into fatal blows. Who knows why? Who knows how? And then that gave way to full-scale battle. And as we're about to see, the battle did not go well for Saul's side. So take a look at verse 17, where we left off. Verse 17 says this, And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner, the men of Israel, were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. 
Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? You get the sense that Abner, the great general, the experienced warrior, knows how this is going to end if Asahel keeps chasing him. Verse 23, but he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan. They marched the whole morning. They came to Maonaim. So they've gone back to the other side of the river now. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So that's how chapter 2 ends. That's how this particular battle ends. It's not the end of the war, but it's the end of that battle for now. And the two armies retreat to their respective home bases. Abner's army crosses the river back to Maonaim. Joab's army, David's army, heads south again to Hebron. By the end of chapter 2, there's a war on between these rival claimants to the throne. That's how chapter 2 ends. Now, you can see in your bulletin this morning, I want to read just a little bit more. I deliberately extended our passage this morning so as to take in the first part of chapter 3 because I think it's helpful for us to read and reflect upon these verses as well here at the beginning of chapter 3 on the heels of what we just read in chapter 2. So look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, 
the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream of Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So that's what unfolds here in our passage this morning. Throughout chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3. That's our story. Now, what do we learn from it? What lessons can we glean from this and bring to bear upon our own lives? There are two especially that I want to highlight. We'll spend a little bit more time with the first of them. So two truths, two lessons that I want to reflect upon here. The first of them has to do with what I was saying at the outset about our own lives. It is sometimes the case that when you turn the page on what's been a chapter of testing and trials, you turn the page only to find that a whole new set of tests and trials is waiting for you on the next page. Well, then the question becomes, what do you make of that? How do you handle that? Are you undone by that? Are you undone by it because it caught you off guard? Because whether you realized it or not, perhaps you'd been thinking deep down, surely now all my troubles are behind me. And then, lo and behold, you find that they were not. And there are all kinds of examples of this in our own experience. You start a new job that's so much more promising than the last one. You've turned that page, and then it turns out that your new boss has some idiosyncrasies and blind spots and failings of his own, and you're going to have to deal with them, and it's not going to be easy. Or you get married. You've turned that page. And then you find out that your spouse has some idiosyncrasies and blind spots and failings too. Maybe some that you were not aware of before. Or you move to a new city, into a new home. You've turned that page. A new beginning. And then you realize that there are some things that even the most diligent home inspection cannot prepare you for. Or turning out of spiritual realities, deeper realities. You become a Christian believer. The ultimate turning of the page. You come to faith in Christ. And then it isn't all that long before you discover as a believer that there's still a wide spectrum of sin and misery that you're going to have to deal with. And in fact, if anything, becoming a Christian introduced some new pains and frustrations that you didn't have to deal with before, before you came to Jesus. Or you join a new church. You've turned that page. And then you realize in a new way what you've known all along, which is that there's no such thing as a perfect church. That's not just a slogan. Or your church moves into a new building with fantastic acoustics and fantastically comfortable green chairs. What a turning of the page. Whatever it might be, whether it's spiritual or earthly, whether it's individual or corporate, 
whether it's monumental or minor, this happens sometimes. It, it hits you in some new way that turning the page did not mean leaving all of the challenges behind. And the point is this. The Bible prepares us for that. The Bible equips us for that in part by teaching us to expect it. Thank God for the realistic word of God that we've been given. And David's experience right here in this passage is an instance of it. This is one of the things that's so valuable about this particular moment in David's unfolding life story. As I was saying before, we need to come to grips with the new chapter, the turning of the page that this is, that this must have felt like for David. Saul is dead. Saul isn't around anymore to hunt David down. David's own tribe has crowned him king. In many ways, David has turned the page. He's less left certain tests and trials behind What does he find when he turns the page? He finds civil war. What he finds is the household of Saul coming together to make warfare against him under the banner of one of the sons of Saul. What he finds is that so many of his own people, except for his own tribe, go along with it. How's that for turning the page? This is one of those moments in the Bible that serves as a very valuable reality check. Not just in David's life, but in our own. It's not to say that you should be bracing yourself for civil war around every corner. It's not to say that you should be expecting things to fall apart every time you make a new beginning. That would be pessimism and cynicism. And we don't want to go there. We don't want to leave joy and hope behind, but it is to say that we need to be realistic about this age and about our calling as Christians and as the Christian church in this age. The reality is this, as it is sometimes put, this is the age of the church's militancy. In other words, the whole age until the return of Christ This is a time when the church on earth is called a spiritual warfare under the kingship of her King Jesus. This is the age of the church's militancy. And that touches down in our own lives. We can expect as Christians that we're going to keep wrestling with sin and misery of all shapes and sizes even when we've turned to some new chapter. However blessed that new chapter may be, and oftentimes it is. This is the age of the church's militancy. Now, just to be clear, when we say that about this present age, that does not mean that the church's experience in this age is one of testing and trial at a constant, unyielding intensity. That's not true. We are not in a constant state of Code Red or DEFCON 2, if you prefer. I watched war games not too long ago. Even in this age, the church's fortunes rise and fall. Even in this age, the church's trials ebb and flow. 
And let me say, that too, you can tell from David's own experience. Here in chapter 2, it's civil war, and it will be for a few chapters. Later on in the book, it's going to be tragic sin and awful rebellion. But in between, we can acknowledge there is a relatively sweet season for David, especially chapters 5 through 10. And Lord willing, in a few weeks, we'll get there. It's a season of recognition and triumph and worship. And not only that, but then later on under his son Solomon, things get even better. So it's not to say that our church's experience in this age is one of constant code red testing and trial. But it is to say, That the church is never entirely without her trials in this age. Even when she has left certain difficulties behind. And it feels like a new day has dawned. And in some ways maybe it has. The church is never entirely without her trials in this age. In this world, Christians are never in a position to put their armor down. And so we should not be thrown. We shouldn't be surprised When we turn the page in some way, when we enter into a new season of some kind, and sure enough, we find that that new season has difficulties all its own. Of course it does. This is the age of the church's militancy, a time when we can expect to face new challenges around the corner. And and this this isn't just David's story here, In 2 Samuel, this isn't just something we experience now and then. Take a big step back. This is the drama of redemption history. The whole significance of this age in which we're living. I was thinking about it this way. I was thinking about a rather striking pair of New Testament passages that we can put back to back in order to capture this. These were the two passages that came to my own mind. And and you can almost imagine them side by side. Here's passage number one. This is the very end of Luke's gospel. Passage number one says this. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them... He parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So that's passage number one. That's the end of Luke. You talk about turning the page. Death has given way to resurrection and ascension. The cross has given way to the empty tomb. In the heavenly coronation, a new age has dawned. That's passage number one. Now here's passage number two that we can put right next to it. Though in your Bible, you'd have to turn a few pages to get to it. This is 2 Timothy 3. Here's Paul writing to Timothy about this age in which Christ is reigning like that. 2 Timothy 3. Paul writes this, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's passage number two. That's 2 Timothy 3. You talk about a reality check. And that's Paul talking, in some cases, about people in the church in this age, throughout this age. You read that, you read what Paul says there in 2 Timothy 3, and you want to say, wait, I thought we turned the page. I thought you were just saying death had given way to resurrection and ascension. I thought you were just saying that the cross had given way to the empty tomb and the heavenly coronation. A new age has dawned. Well, it had. And it still has. That's still true. And yet it's also true that that age has not yet dawned in all of its fullness the way it's going to when Jesus comes back. And until that happens, this is what we can expect. And Scripture prepares us for it. Scripture equips us for it. And in that respect, David's own tale is such a help to us, including this moment right here this morning in chapter 2. What David goes through in this moment as he pivots to a new chapter and the way David would have been able to handle it and face it as a man after God's own heart. Because of everything that he'd been through leading up to this turning of the page. David knew that in this new challenging chapter, with the crown on his head, God would be the same God that he'd always been. He'd be the same God who was with David when he faced off against the lion and the bear as a shepherd. He'd be the same God who was with David when he faced off against Goliath in the valley. He'd be the same God who was with David when he was on the run from Saul. And when he was hiding for his life among the Philistines. And when he was hunting down the Amalekites who'd captured his own family. David could bring with him All of those previous memories and lessons from all of those previous pages. It's like when you read any book. When you start a new chapter, you don't throw out and forget the chapters that you already read along the way. No, in a sense, you bring them with you. That's the only way the book makes sense. So, yeah, it's a new chapter now for David with new challenges. But same God, same as he'd always been, same as he shall ever be. And Christian, that goes for you too. Whatever your new chapter might be, however blessed it might appear on the horizon, however difficult it turns out to be, same God that you've always known. Same good and wise and mighty God that he has always been for you.
So that's the first of our two lessons here this morning, the first of our two truths that I wanted us to take from this. And then here's the second of the two. This one very much related to the first, but it's a slightly different point. And this is why I deliberately extended our passage this morning so as to take in the beginning of chapter 3. It is the preacher's prerogative to block off whatever passage he has in mind Sunday after Sunday. So we kept going this Sunday on into chapter 3. And remember what we saw at the beginning of that chapter as we kept going. We read this. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And then this. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. And then it goes on to name them. And I did practice my pronunciation this morning before I read all of those names. It's very helpful to reach for your phone and to go to the Bible app and to listen to them, read the scriptures and to work on the pronunciation. Although I was a little thrown this morning when I I went to my app to listen to this passage, to hear all of these names read. And instead of the usual voice that I'm used to hearing, I hear an Irish woman reading to me. And I look down and realize that it was Kristen Getty. Apparently she's a new option now on the ESV app. But that's how chapter 3 began. The house of David grew stronger and stronger. And sons were born to him. I simply want to highlight this reality. Even in the midst of a civil war. Even at a time when David himself is having it powerfully impressed upon him that he's turned the page to face new tests and trials, even then, God was good to him. David's fortunes were rising. David's household was growing. I say David's fortunes were rising because we're told David grew stronger and stronger. I say David's household was growing because we're told that he had all of these children at the time. Now, we've talked about this before. We can acknowledge again here. No, David should not have had more than one wife. Nobody should have. That should not have been. That should not be. And yet we can still say, even acknowledging that, We can still say what the psalmist says, Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So we can still say, David was blessed. God was good to him. And we want to have our eyes open to see that. So David's fortunes were rising and his household His household was growing, even at a time like this. Now, how does this one touch down? What should this one mean to you? Well, let's say you have turned the page to some new chapter. And let's say it is hitting you hard that you haven't left all of the challenges behind. The lesson is this. Keep your eyes open for the blessings. Keep your eyes open 
to see how God is caring and providing and growing and guiding because it's there. It's there to be seen. But you've got to keep your eyes open to see it. And that's the calling. That's the challenge. And I know it is a challenge. I know it from my own life. It is the challenge of maintaining what we might call a well-rounded perspective. Keeping in view the kindnesses of God at the same time that you're keenly aware of the trials that God has brought your way. That is a challenge. Maybe especially when you have entered into some new chapter and you're finding it challenging in ways that you had not anticipated. Perhaps especially then it can be easy to be overwhelmed by frustrations and disappointments because you can be thinking to yourself it wasn't supposed to be this way. Or at least you told yourself that it wasn't going to be this way and then you end up losing track of how God has continued to care for you because it's those frustrations and disappointments that loom so large in your mind as to effectively block out your vision of everything else. So we can go back over those examples I offered up before. That new job with the challenging new boss. Well, look for the goodness of God in it. It's there to be seen. Or the new marriage with a sinful spouse. Every spouse is. Learn to see how God is still causing you to learn and grow through it. Or the new home in a new city. Keep your eyes open for the new possibilities that were waiting for you there. Or becoming a believer. Or joining a church. Or your church moving into a new building. Do not lose sight of the fantastic acoustics. And the fantastically comfortable green chair. David grew stronger and stronger and sons were born to him and we want to we want to make sure that we pick up on that even as we're reading about a time of civil war and bloodshed among the people of God above all we want to make sure that we keep our eyes fixed on Christ this this is true in him this truth is preeminently True, in our King Jesus, because we can say that even in a world like this one, the cause of Christ is advancing. Right now, Aslan is on the move. People are coming to faith. Here and around the world, churches are coming together, even in a world like this one. And we can say, That even in this age, sons and daughters are being added to the ranks of the family of God. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, the very purpose of God for human history is that his son should be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8. And as the writer of Hebrews puts it, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers In that family, Hebrews 2. And at the end of the age, 
King Jesus, great David's greater son, is going to reign in total triumph. And he'll be surrounded by all of the sons and daughters that he gained for that kingdom. And we'll all be able to look back and see that God was at work, even in this world, even today, even this Sunday, to get us there. To get history there. So brothers and sisters, by all means, let's be realistic today. About what we can expect in this age. Even when we turn a page, let's be realistic. And let's also rejoice today. Because Christ is building his church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do bow before you. And rejoice in you as our king. We do pray that you would help us to take to heart lessons learned today. Grant us, we pray, this scriptural realism that we've considered. We do thank you for the new chapters, the new opportunities that you bring our way. We thank you for them. We see your goodness in them. And at the same time, we know that we must long and ache for the world to come. For only then and there will we be finally free to set our armor down. So we pray that you would fix our hopes squarely on that day. And in the meantime, we pray that you would grant us good vision the good vision of a well-rounded perspective for even in this age, even right now, even today, you've dealt bountifully with us. And we pray that you grant us the eyes to see it and the hearts to be grateful for it, grateful to God. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.